Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. So in this episode, we're going to look inside the United Nations and its various agencies and the harsh reality of endemic corruption and how governments intersect with UN agencies. The U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act makes it unlawful to pay or offer a bribe to a foreign official, which is defined broadly and includes any employee of a foreign government or any department, agency, or instrumentality thereof, or of a public international organization or anyone acting on behalf of such government or department. A public international organization is an organization formed by two or more governments. The United Nations is probably the largest and most complex public international organization. Given its unique mission, the nature of how it is funded and disperses funds largely for things like large-scale infrastructure building, healthcare, education, and peacekeeping, and the fact that its employees and officers are foreign officials under the law, the UN represents a perfect storm of corruption risk. Indeed, there have been numerous high-profile corruption investigations in which UN agencies and officials were at the center of the storm, many, if not most of them, investigating by today's guest. Today's discussion is about efforts at rooting out fraud and corruption within the UN and its agencies so that it can successfully carry out its critically important objectives of supporting human rights, delivering humanitarian aid, promoting sustainable development, performing international peacekeeping, and upholding the rule of law across the world. So joining me today is Murphy and McGonagall Law Partner, Robert Bob Appleton. Bob has served as chief of the first ever UN Anti-Corruption Unit, the Procurement Fraud Task Force, which existed between 2006 and 2010 and was responsible in part for the focus of the FCPA by the fraud section at DOJ. He was also Director of Financial Investigations and Forensic Audit, as well as Deputy Inspector General at the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, and Chief of Investigations. He was also Chief Investigations Counsel for the United Nations Independent Inquiry Committee investigation led by former Fed Chair Paul Volcker of the $60 billion Iraqi Oil for Food Program. Bob also spent 15 years with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Connecticut, prosecuting a wide range of high-profile international cases, including those involving public corruption, terrorist financing, and international money laundering. Bob is a globally recognized Anti-Corruption and Foreign Corrupt Practices Act expert and one of the foremost FCPA and AML practitioners in the world. He's led, supervised, or managed more than 1,000 corruption and compliance cases in over 150 countries in his more than 25-year career. Welcome, Bob, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks very much, Scott. Happy to be here and honored to be here. Well, thanks, Bob. So there have been numerous corruption scandals involving UN officials and in UN programs, some of which involve some of the organization's senior-most officials. The UN is a unique organization made up of 193 member nations, which are a combination of wealthy donor countries and impoverished beneficiary countries. The UN obtains its funding from donor countries 
and funds various initiatives and projects to alleviate suffering, thwart terrorism and genocide, and improve quality of life in the developing world. With a $50 billion annual budget, the UN is a tempting target for dishonest businessmen, corrupt politicians, and transnational criminals. Bob, how important is it for investigators to understand the inner workings of how the UN raises money and funds its projects in order to be able to be effective in investigating fraud and corruption within the UN? Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, first of all, I think your description of how the UN operates and the context within which it operates is very, very accurate. First, you listeners have to remember and understand that the UN, as you said, all the countries in the world as members, and its projects span the globe. And many of them are, by their very nature, cross-border. And the other thing to remember is that the UN has the benefit of what's called privileges and immunities. So they're not subject UN and nor its officials are subject to anyone's national laws in the countries in which they operate. They're immune. So this can and does get exploited quite often, and it's critical for national authorities and investigators and compliance officials to understand that international organizations, not just the UN, but especially the UN, play a very large role in many of the programs and projects in the humanitarian health and development context throughout the world, and, and quite a large amount of funds, as you've identified, are donated, spent, and directed towards these projects and programs in very high-risk environments. So it's critical to understand not only the manner in which these projects come about, but how they're also carried out. There's very little oversight in many of these capacities when the, these projects are undertaken. It's interesting about the UN's immunity. I don't think I was aware of that. What else is it about the UN that makes it uniquely susceptible to fraud and corruption? Only the organization is responsible for effectively self-policing and for carrying out oversight and ensuring that the programs run free of fraud and free of corruption. And so it's not a project or program where, for example, a national authority will take an interest or conduct an investigation because they can't without the UN's approval. So they take the lead and they have the authority and decision of whether to divest themselves of the authority of, or not. And you know, one example, it's not fraud and corruption, but the sexual ex exploitation and abuse of minors where peacekeeping troops have run into some problems in some developing areas where they're peacekeeping troops of another nationality are then devoted you know, to Haiti or another high-risk place, and something goes wrong, and then the question is, well, who's responsible for the oversight and investigation of these issues? And so it can be tricky about whose authority, uh, whose jurisdiction it is, and what the possible ramifications and accountability is. Thanks, Bob. So in FCPA enforcement, many cases relate to construction of plant facilities, toll roads, rail systems, airports, or other significant construction or infrastructure projects. In fact, many UN projects entail the award of construction contracts. What are some examples of corruption cases involving construction that can be instructive, and what is it about those cases that are uh, noteworthy? Sure. You know, in our four years of shining a spotlight on this. I mean, as you said at the outset, there's a huge amount of money and there's some very large contracts through the peacekeeping operations, uh, development operations that the organization supports or undertakes 
And some of these contracts can be in the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions. So for example, that we investigated the food services contract for all the peacekeeping troops in a particular mission to telecommunications. We had a, a case of where one senior official was steering $100 million worth of telecommunications contracts and equipment to a preferred vendor. We had huge cases of simply manpower contracts for large amounts of peacekeeping work or manpower work, or as you said, construction or road building contracts in many developing areas. And again, you know, these are very, very large contracts and they're often brokered, at least until very recently, there were many of them were brokered through third-party intermediaries and agents. And there was an effort from the contracts to try and distance themselves from those contracts by hiring that third party. But as you know, and as the FCPA is designed, you cannot insulate yourself from those agents. Those agents bind you when they act on your behalf. There's often that risk is that when you're seeking to either bid on or engage or obtain a contract involving one of these projects, that you understand there are those risks attached. And even though the UN may be immune, the, the contractors and entities and individuals that are dealing with the organization are not. And so there were a number of cases that were brought that we investigated against those third parties and also the contractors that either paid bribes directly or indirectly to obtain those contracts through third parties. It's interesting. There certainly was a time where people thought that having an intermediary do the dirty deeds, that they are somehow giving themselves air cover. But that myth has been exposed as yeah. being a terribly effective strategy. But, it, you know, it, it worked for quite some time. You know, it was interesting. Even the agreements that we were able to uncover some of the agreements between the uh, third parties and the, and the uh, ultimate companies. And, you know, you'd have the language right in there that, you know, the percentage, the intermediary was, was allowed to, to be paid and uh, for what purpose. And even one contract said, as long as we obtain the contract by any means necessary, we will pay the fee. It's unfortunate wording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it didn't help them in the long run. No, I imagine council had some fun with that. So within the UN ecosystem, donor countries are known to wield a certain amount of influence as to which projects receive funding and also what local contractors may be eligible to bid on a project. These donors sometimes have played a role in defending companies from their countries from corruption investigations. To avoid donor countries and UN officials from wielding too much influence over the funding of projects and the award of contracts, what steps can organizations like the UN take to mitigate the risk of corruption and conflicts of interest? Yeah, Scott, it's a great question. And as you know, when we were optimized in this circumstance quite a bit where, you know, we were very surprised that where we thought that when we identified corruption and issues with certain companies that there would be kind of colorblind accountability. And that was not the case where many times the national government would come to the aid of the company irrespective of what they actually had done. So there's a couple of things you absolutely have to do. And right off the bat, one is you have to take the politics out of oversight and accountability, and there's got to be a protection built into the system to weed out the bias, but also to protect the investigators and the framework of the system. And the and the organization and everyone involved, all the all the donors and all the countries, have to get behind kind of a uniform and universal ban on you know this kind of behavior that disallow 
fraud and corruption and other forms of coercion and illegality from being permissible. So that's right off the bat has to be fundamental tenor and understanding has to really be clarified and in certain circumstances changed to reflect that there really is going to be a zero tolerance policy. And without that kind of zero tolerance policy, you're never going to be able to change things for the better. And as we all know, Corruption really just inhibits growth and skews programs and organizations. A lot of times what I found, which was, you know, someone from the West who up until the time I went to the UN had some experience with overseas systems and prosecutions and cases in this field. It wasn't until I was actually stationed in Europe and traveled around Africa that I realized how uh, cultural payments of bribes and gratuities are to, to many locations, that it's part of the system and it's been part of the process for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's not looked upon, you know, accepting money or dividing a contractor providing a government official with a stipend for a contract, not only is not illegal, it's accepted. Yeah, I mean, I think you're spot on. If you bring a purely Western business practices frame of reference to bear, you're going to miss a lot because there are, you know, listen, corruption exists everywhere. But I think in certain cultures, you're absolutely right. It is endemic. It is part of daily life and it touches people in small ways every day. And then in some instances, in a much more impactful way, just in terms of how things get done in, in a country, it is just part of life. People may not be happy about it, but they're also not necessarily shocked by it. In fact, it's expected. Right. So I think it's very important to understand the, the culture and the implications that that country's culture can have on the, you know, the behavior. Yeah. So Bob, the Iraqi oil for food program as you know, was a $60 billion UN program in which the Saddam Hussein regime of Iraq was permitted to sell oil despite being under stringent United Nations, European Union, and OFAC sanctions prohibiting them from the sale of oil and prohibited any person or entity from interacting or transacting with the Iraq regime. But it made this it permissible as long as the proceeds of those oil sales was going to be used by the Iraqi government to purchase various humanitarian supplies for the Iraqi people who were who were suffering as a result of the international attack. How did that program end up getting distorted by the Saddam Hussein regime? Yeah, no, this is, uh, I think even to, to this day, is still the largest international fraud case in the world. And as you say, I mean, the, the thought and the idea behind the oil for food program was very noble and the idea was laudable, which was to alleviate the human suffering of the Iraqi people from the sanctions and people were literally starving in Iraq. So the goal of the program was, yes, to allow the Iraqi regime to sell oils for the sole purpose of feeding their people. The problem, there were a couple of fundamental problems. One was they put the UN in charge of it and the UN has, was not in the business of overseeing such programs. It hadn't done anything like that previously. And it didn't have the expertise or the personnel to do it. And so it really relied upon the good faith of the participants. And Saddam Hussein actually did a remarkable job of completely corrupting the program. And he infused corruption on both ends, both on demanding bribes or payments from the oil companies, as well as kickbacks from the goods, humanitarian goods suppliers that were providing the goods and services to help the people. So on both sides, he was extracting payments and there wasn't a sufficient oversight or supervision of the program to identify it till literally years later after he had successfully set up an entire 
different mechanism. One of my roles was to investigate the flow of funds. And we were actually in Switzerland examining the escrow banks. The program had established major financial institutions acting as escrow agents. And the bribe monies were flowing into their Switzerland bank accounts regularly, and the payments were being made, and they were able to literally get away with the scheme with everybody watching. Another amazing fact was it was actually audited from time to time, but it wasn't audited in the way that would pick up the actual fraud and corruption that was uh, ensuing in the program. So uh, it was like kind of as a perfect storm, as you alluded to earlier, of efficiencies where there really wasn't the expertise or really the intention or desire of the UN to oversee the program. And there was also allegations of corruption within the UN that they were taking advantage of, certain officials were taking advantage of the program as well. And this was what led to the creation of my task force was the deficiencies that the Independent Inquiry Committee found in the oversight office in the UN were exposed. and. Our unit was actually created to address that, but unfortunately, we were only an ad hoc temporary unit, and we filled that need for a few years, but ultimately, it went back to the way it was. It was an amazing case, and in fact, it spawned many FCPA enforcement actions as a result of that investigation against oil field services companies and big oil companies and yep. involved in customs brokerage and several individuals. It had a lasting impact. In fact, it's one of the FCPA cases that I think continues to be studied by compliance officers and investigators. What are some of the lessons learned from that investigation and are any of them still relevant today? Oh, absolutely, Scott. That's a great question. I would also add that, you know, in part, the oil for food investigation spawned this focus on the SCPA. And after, you know, remember in 2006, I mean, the SCPA had been on the books since 1977, but uh, the cases uh, exploded and really just blossomed after oil for food. And, you know, we, part of my role was to in, engage with foreign authorities to make sure they got the evidence needed to move forward with national prosecutions and national cases so that the work could actually be brought to real um, national court to have real results. Because, you know, in the UN system, again, with the privileges and immunities, there wasn't, and they didn't have the apparatus. But, you know, one of the major tools that was used by our investigations teams and it still holds very true today. I see it in many contexts. That when an audit is conducted of a company, of a program, of an institution, of an organization, if you're looking for, you want to find whether or not there's fraud and corruption, a typical audit is not going to, in most cases, or in many cases, not uncover fraud uh, and corruption. What you need to do is apply forensic tools, forensic capacity, and actually dig under the surface of just a uh, what the typical audit does and looking for patterns. I mean, an audit may identify a red flag, but one of the big lessons from World for Food was when we did a forensic dive into the data, into the uh, records, into the emails, that's where we found evidence of the fraud and corruption. So you really need, and it still holds true today, I still have cases uh, literally just uh, last month where a similar circumstance uh, we were reviewing where you know, fraud and corruption hadn't been picked up in an organization for a few years, and it had been audited. Uh, and by a big fork audit firm, you know, again, it wasn't, they were just asked to perform a, a, a routine audit. And if you don't include those tools necessary to identify fraud and corruption activity, which has very similar characteristics and, and does throw off red flags, but you have to examine it in the right way to, to identify it. And that's one of the, I think, one of the big lessons from uh, Oil for Food that still holds very true to this day.
But, you know, you make a really important point that bears repeating. And I think there is a um, widespread misconception that if an organization has audited financial statements, they're audited by a big four accounting firm, that somehow lessens the risk of broader corruption in that organization because, quote, audited. But auditing, you know, sort of you know, assurance services is largely a function of the financial statements were prepared in accordance with accepted uh, accounting standards. Are no, you know, noted exceptions in terms of their accounting treatment of how they account for income and expenses. You know, they're not looking at the universe of transactions. They're not necessarily looking at high risk transactions. They are. No, exactly. You know, if they're sampling transactions, which they, you know, they, they often do, it's a random sample. It's not a judgmental sample that looking for characteristics of fraud or corruption. And then there's another whole principle underlying auditing of materiality. What they're focusing on are transactions or sets of transactions that are material to the financial statements. And yet corruption doesn't have a materiality. There is exactly. no threshold. So there's a big gap between, you know, that which, you know, listen, auditors find stuff, no question, but it's not necessarily part of the grand design of things. A lot of times it's by accident. Right. I mean, to put it simply in like layman's terms, if, if the numbers add up, you know, a, an organization's financials might pass muster and may, may be approved, engage in fraud and corruption and that are professional that it understand that. So, you know, the numbers may add up, but if the uh, underlying transactions or those numbers, uh, the product of theft, or they there really wasn't, uh, you know, that transaction or those numbers uh, actually occurred and changed hands and the payments weren't as they say, you're going to miss the fraud and corruption and um, you're not going to see it. Now, that's why, you know, the <clears throat> certain discrete identified segments. If you look at, you can find it if you at least do samples of uh, some of these transactions, but if you're just going to do a regular audit, you're going to miss it. Oh, I couldn't agree more. So the, the UN procures billions of dollars of goods and services each year in fulfillment of its mission. Um, you were involved in uh, a spinoff investigation from Oil for Food, um, and you mentioned it earlier, in which the son of then Secretary General uh, Pokianen was, you know, being paid for five years a salary by a company that was under investigation. And this eventually led to the creation of the UN Procurement Fraud Task Force, of which you were the appointment. What were some of the highlights of that task force's four-year run, and what caused it to be a victim of its own success? Yeah, no, it was, um, it was an incredible time. Um, you know, the task force, as I mentioned before, we were supposed to only exist for a year and we were supposed to we resulted because there was a lot of concern in, you know, the U.S. being in the lead of this, that there was another oil for food, oil for food lurking within the U.N. system. So our job was to examine the investigations files and also to look at the organization uh, to see if that was the case. What ended up being that was supposed to be just for a one-year temporary um, hiatus ended up being four years. We were extended three times. We ended up investigating more than 300 cases. Uh, we identified uh, $630 million in fraud and corrupt transactions and, and contracts. And we recovered quite a bit of money as well. And so we, we ended up making with findings, I believe, 24 cases where we issued um, reports of findings of fraud and corruption. I, I, you know, I would note an organization that size, um, with that many, um, that much money uh, at stake and in play in these various um, 
regions across the globe, uh, not an extraordinary uh, number. I think it's uh, it was pretty regular and pretty pretty routine. But nonetheless, you know, we we had some pretty major cases. In one particular case, you know, we had identified that the the head of procurement, the most senior procurement official, had actually he was an Indian national. He had steered a hundred million dollars worth in the aggregate of contracts to a preferred Indian vendor, a telecommunications company. And over a course of several years, and they had been investigated, the investigations unit at the UN, the tip, the regular investigations division, had investigated it four times and found nothing and continued to clear the official and the companies. And so I said to one of my investigators, you know, we should, you know, let's look at this and kick the tires and get under the hood a bit. Let's go take a look at the, the official's land, the, his records on the, his, the property that he purchased in New York. We did a land title, um, basically a land title search. Sure enough, the property that he was living in, in fact, two properties, he had purchased, purchased in quotes, from the vendor that had won the uh, telecommunications contracts at a very, very lucrative, very below market amount and rate. And so that spawned a big investigation, which ultimately we issued a report of about 130 pages, finding that the official had steered multiple contracts to the, these companies or this company. And we turned that over to the um, U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, who ended up charging the official with the SCPA and other other violations, other fraud violations. And he ended up going to trial. It was, a, it was an amazing case. And he ended up getting convicted you know, the Indian government, to their credit, did not try and interfere with that case, uh, whereas we had other cases where the, the authorities did. And so he ended up getting convicted and sentenced uh, to an eight and a half year uh, term of imprisonment. And we had other cases like that. We had um, contractors, transportation contractors that were shipping uh, materials throughout Africa through the diplomatic service and diplomatic pouch, which is an, another high risk uh, as a result of the organization that they're able to essentially ship things without scrutiny. And we had um, food services contracts worth hundreds of millions of dollars that had been steered to a, a preferred vendor through a third party intermediary. And that had been going on for, for several years. And then we had, you know, we had some investigations of Russian companies and that ultimately was our, our downfall. My mistake was that I thought that you know, the re our results would be welcomed and uh, we'd be at least in some sense congratulated for the work we did, but it wasn't welcomed at all. And in one, in, in the particular case of the um, the Russian government, actually um, ultimately successfully was able to kill off the unit because of essentially our investigations of some of their uh, some of their vendors on contracts involving. Um, transportation. So ultimately, at the end of 2009, we ultimately eventually lost our funding because of the national authorities of the target. Some of the targets of ours kind of joined forces and was able to kill off the funding. But, you know, we did a, quite a bit of good work in those terms. None of it has been um, shown to have been flawed in any way. And uh, the results have all been upheld in various courts uh, in various locations. Well, the story that led to the demise of the Procurement Fraud Task Force is a symptom of the bigger problem that we've been talking about in the UN, that how donor countries wield outsized influence over everything, including things that they really shouldn't have any influence, investigations, but, uh, that such is the nature of the endemic corruption. After the UN, Bob, you, um, you ran, also ran investigations for the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria, uh, an organization that's very much in the spotlight today with COVID-19. Indeed, many of the foremost experts running the COVID task forces have strong ties to the Global Fund. When you ran investigations there, what did you find that was either unique 
or separate from the the UN investigations in which you've been involved. So yeah, that was a, it was an amazing time. Um, you know, at the, at the Global Fund, you know, we were stationed in Geneva, Switzerland. Our focus and our cases were throughout uh, all of Africa, Asia, Latin America, Eastern Europe. So we were constantly on the road, and it was much different than the UN in the sense that the Global Fund did and still does uh, support many uh, of the developing world's uh, health ministries and health programs. And those countries are very largely dependent on the fund uh, for their survival, for the support for their um, their health health ministries and health establishment. And the Global Fund's model was much different than the UN's in the sense that it was very hands-off. Implementation and oversight in the hands of the uh, recipients. Um, so Global Fund did not have any offices on the ground in any of the locations. And often the first sign or the first complaints of anything wrong with the programs came to us. And we had a very uh, active audit side and they did a lot of really great work and they were conducting with just a small staff dozens of audits across the globe of these programs and you know some of them were you know ex- had extraordinarily uh, significant amounts of money and Ethiopia got more than a billion a year and Nigeria South Africa um, it was different in the sense that what we found was fraud and corruption on the ground was very uh, much tied to the kind of the economic circumstances of the particular country so we spent a lot of time in Francophone West Africa, Burkina Faso, Mali, Mauritania, and there was um, a lot of systemic fraud and corruption by the fabrication of false documents, false invoices. Um, in one case, we were in a took a, a big uh, crate from the office of the health ministry that was running the program, and we found that ninety, like ninety percent of those documents were fabricated. And so it was really kind of, a, in some case, some sense is a very sad situation because you'd have very needed services that were being interrupted by this theft by local vendors and local individuals portraying themselves as vendors of the, uh, and suppliers to the various programs that were actually just stealing the money. Uh, they would create a false uh, identity, a false, even, even so much sometimes as uh, false places of business where we would come up and there'd be nothing at the location which had applied for money from the program. Or other cases, there were these other expenditures, such as training events. And we would go to the hotel where this training was supposed to have occurred. Either there was no hotel there, or they had no evidence of any of the individuals um, had been there to, to receive any kind of training. So you found more lower levels of corruption. It was more, um, you know, kind of on the ground types of, but the, when you added up some of these monies, it got to be pretty significant in terms of amounts. And ultimately, uh, you know, the Associated Press had ran a story on our work and it caused the fund a, a quite a bit of a problem in 2013, because unlike the UN, where donations and commitments to the UN are by treaty, and so countries have to or require to support the UN, and the Global Fund was a totally voluntary system where contributions were made by uh, nations, nation states uh, voluntarily. And you had, you U.S. had the lead. I mean, 33% of the fund is U.S. You know, we were finding some pretty significant episodes, and this wasn't the case to make you know across the board. I mean, we were finding pockets of this, and I, I think it led to much stronger programs ultimately, where the our our cases and our reports 
strengthen the programs and there was actual improvement when you know when the results came through and still are the number one health financier uh, to many of these countries in the world but we were finding um, you know, we were finding our pockets of, uh, of these kinds of things and sometimes the cases were you know much different in the sense that we were able to see this uh, what I was talking about before which is the um, cultural aspect of giving money or paying money or paying a sum of money to secure a contract we started to see this as um, some places as uh, you know routine well it's uh, so true in so many parts of the world speaking of which you, you've spent a lot of time on the ground in places where international organizations like the global fund prop up and provide really the backbone of the healthcare system in over 100 countries what did you learn through those investigations that's relevant in combating fraud and corruption more generally, you know, about how it takes hold and how to effectively kind of get ahead of it or, or stop? Sure, sure. So, yeah, no, there was it was um, quite enlightening because you could see from many of these cases exactly how this developed and um, how it materialized and how it wasn't intercepted. So, you know, one major lesson is of any pub program where there's public money, there's got to be alongside of the program an equal commitment to for oversight, for uh, there to be a competent, independent, ex, you know, either external third party or independent party to uh, examine the program on a regular basis with the eye towards uh, ensuring that monies aren't being diverted or that there is not theft of fraud. <clears throat> and, it, you know, it's critical and it's critical also to insulate uh, the those individuals whoever is doing the work from retribution you know this is something the UN has struggled with for many years and they created an ethics office and a whistleblower program but you know that's another point i mean even to this day and even in private practice now you know i see whistleblowers as really uncovering you know a majority of the issues and so you have to you know another lesson is to promote uh, you know freedom uh, for uh, staff and employees to be able to report without retribution and without punishment um, when they see something wrong and because those you know people on the front lines are by far the the most obvious and and the, the ones that are who are most probable in both seeing what's going wrong and also reporting it. And I've also found that many people are offended, you know, while there's, you know, you see bad actors, which can also taint programs. Many have very dedicated public servants and people that are doing these jobs for very low pay that are very ethical. And when they see something wrong, they, they're offended by it. And when there isn't any accountability, and when um, people that are involved in um, either stealing uh, funds of, of these kinds of programs aren't held to account, those people lose uh, faith and your programs suffer in many ways than just the, the uh, isolated or incidental um, theft or, or fraud or corruption that you really jeopardize your entire program uh, when this takes hold and seeps in. So you both have to uh, regularly uh, audit and hold, you know, forensically audit and hold um, individuals to account, but also promote, you know, ethical culture and climate and promote a a, a whistleblower um, climate because that'll very often root out uh, issues and problems. No, that's a really good point because, um, you know, we, we talked earlier about the important role that culture plays and how corruption is part of people's daily lives. 
But that doesn't mean people are happy about it. In fact, I think, you know, in large measure, the overwhelming majority of people are disgusted with it and they've had enough, but they don't have necessarily a mechanism to report what they're seeing. Kind of look at, you know, like something that's been going on in India for a few years. There's this app that everyone has now loaded onto their phone. Right. Ipaidabribe.com. Right. It is this unbelievable grassroots campaign where people who are just fed up with having to pay off police officers and people at motor vehicle and, you know, all the different petty public officials that are extorting these payments. And they may pay the payment, but the second they're out of sight, they're, they're, yeah, no, exactly. They're reporting. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're completely offended by it. And, you know, that, yeah, the most, the average person is incensed and see, you know, these, the rich getting richer and, uh, you know, people getting money through, you know, it's public money too. I mean, there are a lot of people who are very offended by that. Well, they're, they're exploiting their position. People definitely have had enough. Often the bad actors in these, um, you know, sort of international and cross border countries are companies from the developed countries, and we talked about this earlier, the donor countries, who are you know, looking to achieve business in these developing regions. They're confronted with demands for payments. How did you see this play out? And is there a particular case that comes to mind which sort of brings this all together? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's a great point. And yeah, so I spent about four months in the, you know, with my team in, in Phnom Penh in Cambodia, and what you, what you just described is what exactly is what happened. So in, you know, Cambodia, we were able through a forensic investigations to identify that many instances where the Ministry of Health, which really runs the health sector in the country and which is largely dependent on foreign public money and the global fund was a big donor that there was a system it was it was actually quite open and obvious and we were looking at emails and even documents where we found that the percentages of contract proceeds were actually laid out in a formula in a spreadsheet where the director got i think it was 15.34% the deputy got 7.26 and all the way down the line to the actual individual who unloaded the um the cargo or the items from the ships it was absolutely incredible it was a it was a set out formula for uh, and this was personal money this is what they were entitled to uh, individually and we were we saw you know a bunch of emails where um there was direction to the agent of the company to pay into offshore accounts into in dollars um, and, you know, the uh, company that did this, who won the contract and actually performed and, and supplied the medical equipment for the country, was a, uh, was a developed country company uh, who was using an agent uh, based out of Singapore. And, you know, they were all too happy to um, pay the bribes and pay the sums of money to get the contract because it was a huge, a huge contract, very valuable. And it set them up for many years to come and it could provide sustained revenue for decades. You know, the company willingly, through the agent, paid the, paid the monies. They disguised the payments in the records of the, of the company as um, you know, management fees. And it was, you know, pretty substantial amounts. I mean, when you added up all the percentages from the 15% to the rest, I mean, there was a, you know, more than a quarter of the contract went to um, payments to uh, public officials in the country. The most amazing part of this whole case was when we did our investigation. And I think 
was one of the strongest ones we ever had. I mean, we had emails. We had ultimately the um, the agent from the of the company uh, confessed, and we had tape recorded statements of him admitting to the bribe payments, admitting to paying the public officials. And when we wrapped this all up. The country had just established its first anti-corruption unit. Um, it's called the Anti-Corruption Commission, I think it was called. And so we wrapped up the case. It was about a 200-page report and had everything you could think of from confessions to the um, emails to the bank records where the bribe payments had flowed into them. Uh, and I was told that uh, there wasn't enough evidence to move the case forward in the country. So it was really a, a phenomenal case for many reasons. I mean, it was able to, I saw the, you know, the cultural piece firsthand, you know, those officials, uh, ultimately the um, fund required them to be removed, but, you know, nothing ever really happened to them. They weren't prosecuted. And, um, you know, four years later, they were back in their positions. It's very hard and you need everyone on the same page to, you know, change this dynamic or uh, amend this culture. And now you have donors uh, in that portion of the world, too, that have no problem making the donations and devoting the monies with no strings attached. Uh, so you're also competing with that. So it's, a, it's a tough environment. But, um, you know, we were able, it was a really fascinating experience. We were able to see you know, the dynamics of how this works up front uh, firsthand, I think, was a very unique experience. No, it sounds like it. So when you were at the UN and the Global Fund, you know, in an investigation identified wrongdoing where the agencies were being exploited and the you know, money or, or supplies destined for beneficiary countries was being diverted or that the process was being exploited for an illegal gain. How were the companies that were responsible hold, held to account? What, what, what was the punishment? Right. So, you know, again, we didn't have, um, you know, we weren't a national authority and you know, we couldn't charge anyone with a criminal offense. We couldn't prosecute anyone. We were, we were an administrative entity within an international organization. So the accountability mechanism within the organization was debarment. So the company and the individuals would be, upon a finding, would be debarred and that mean, meaning that they would be disallowed uh, the benefit of any contract for a period of years or permanently. And there's still some from our task force that are uh, in the UN that are, are still barred to this day. Uh, we ultimately uh, ended up, there were 47 companies th from throughout the world that were debarred as a result of our investigations. Um, this is a similar system that's run in the World Bank and also in UNDP and other international organizations. That's the ultimate punishment for the company. And, you know, it, and it does does have an effect. It does does hurt because you know now international organizations are honoring in many instances the debarments of sister organizations. And you know if you're debarred in one, you could really lose business in many, if not all. And now the you know the IFIs, the international financial institutions, have a cross debarment where they they honor the debarments of their uh, of the other organizations in their group. Yeah, debarment is the main is the main sanction, the main penalty. You know some they're they're uh, proposals to link fines uh, with that. Um, that hasn't yet happened, at least in the UN. Um, there are some proposals to add that penalty as well. If you were secretary general for a day, <laughs> what, what should the UN do uh, and what additional steps should they implement in an effort to reduce fraud and corruption there? Yeah, no, I think, you know, first and foremost, You've got to, you've got to overcome the politics. I think politics is one of the big impediments, in not just the UN, but in 
many of these organizations. Yeah, when I was going from DOJ to, you know, the UN, everyone said to me, well, you know, why are you doing that? I mean, you're going to have no power. You're not going to be able to subpoena people. You're not going to be able to execute search warrants. You're not going to be able to arrest anyone. But in fact, um, you actually have quite a bit of authority and quite a bit of you can actually, unlike you know a U.S. prosecutor, you can get on a plane in a day and go down, go to the location where the investigation is. Whereas if you're a national authority, it'll take you months to do something like that. Uh, but first and foremost is um, getting the politics out of um, out of the system and having a general, you know, real acceptance of a zero tolerance policy. And then you have to protect your institutions. You have to protect your investigators from retribution and retaliation. And I think, unfortunately, many of the oversight bodies in the international organizations are substantially weakened because you have career officials that are worried about, you know, losing their paychecks um, if, in fact, they anger a subject of an investigation or a country uh, where that's protecting a vendor or an individual, um, they're afraid of angering that country, that 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 delegation, for fear of you know losing their job. So you have to you have to um, protect the investigative function from retaliation, and also you know protect your whistleblowers uh, from retaliation and. Uh, meaningfully, meaning that it, you know, shift the burden to prove that the the act or the discipline wasn't as a result of the reporting of the misconduct, because uh, it's very hard to make a retribution case. I and mean, that's a whole subject for another day. But you have to have a zero tolerance policy. You have to take the politics out, and you have to protect your investigators. Well, Bob, this has been great. Always fascinating to hear from you and, and uh, for you to share your incredible experiences across the globe. Really appreciate your time today. Um, My pleasure, Scott. It's been an honor. So that was Murphy and McGonagall partner and FCPA expert Bob Abbott. This concludes this episode of Broad Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thanks for listening. If you have an idea for a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest that you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at Strategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening.